one of my favorite all-time coaches, a guy by the name of Lee Brower. Lee used to remind us all that the basis of most unhappiness <laughs> is comparison. I think that's in your email, like on the signature of your email. Hmm. When you start to feel unhappy about something, is it based on comparison? He or she is smarter, richer, faster, better, more beautiful, more capable, more accomplished than I am. Welcome to Your Financial Sobriety, a podcast that challenges conventional beliefs about money and life. We're here to talk about the only three relationships in life that really matter, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with other people, and our relationship with money. And they are all tied very closely to one another. If you've ever struggled with any of these relationships at any point in your life, then you're in the right place. I'm Matthew Grishman, co-owner of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered just outside San Francisco, California. I'm joined by my business partner and BFF, Jim Gebhardt, who got this party started when he opened the doors of our firm in 2005. Jim and I created Your Financial Sobriety because we want to help a lot of people. We're on a mission to become the most disruptive money influencers of our time. If after listening today, you're able to take one step closer to keeping your money more aligned with the people, places, and experiences that mean the most to you, then Jim and I just got one step closer to accomplishing our mission. You and I have done this, all this work, working with these coaches, working with each other, reading mm -hmm. these books, all to better understand this thing of ours called ego. Dun, dun, dun. Which really is nothing more. I mean, cue, ego. Cue the big music. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, we got any big, uh, dark, like Darth Vader music for that? My ego, your ego, Jeff's ego, all of our egos. I don't have an ego. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, yeah. I'm I not checked gonna, it at the door. I'm not going down that road. This ego, this phenomenon of ego is just a, a synonym for the mask that I would wear. My ego would come out and provide me the mask that I would wear. And what, Like a chameleon. Very much like a chameleon. Mm. There were multiple ways my ego would hijack my thoughts and behaviors, meaning there were multiple masks that I might put on on any given day. And realize most of this was subconscious for most of my life. This took a long time for me to actually pinpoint this stuff. By doing the work that you and I are talking about, it helps me recognize even today when I unconsciously put a mask on. I love how you remind me to slow the heck down because I can still put a mask on. You've said to me after <laughs> – you said to me once after an episode we recorded, lighten up, Francis. Right. Which was your way of helping me take my mask off because my ego was flaring unbelievably in that recording session. When we do this work and we recognize when we're unconsciously wearing a mask, when my ego is running the show, it teaches us how to pause, how to bring the real me back into the room. I guess, in other words, it, it teaches me how to pause and take my mask off. Yeah. Let's be clear. We're not talking about ego in the context of puffery. Well. In that I'm, you know, I'm all of that. We are, in a Maybe sense. we are. Well, isn't that the it, universal phenomenon that when people think of ego, like if I were to sit here and say, gosh, you know, Jeff, our podcast producer's got a tremendous ego, aren't I insinuating that he's a narcissistic of course, none of this is true. I'm having fun with this because he's sitting 6.2 feet away to my right. Aren't we insinuating 
when we say somebody yes. has an ego that it's about narcissism or arrogance or some sort of puff the chest out kind of thing? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. And that form of ego does lead to this huge sense of false pride, which is I'm better than thou are, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing that you and I have learned doing this work. Ego is not a universal singular phenomenon of arrogance, puffery, and narcissism. Right. Ego can come out in so many different ways based on whatever temporary feeling is going on inside of you right now. That's why I love that chameleon concept. Yes. Right? Because it changes for the circumstances. If you're in an uncomfortable situation, the part of your ego that's going to be able to protect you from that uncomfortable circumstance, your go-to move. Well, your ego thinks it's protecting you yeah, from yeah, those yeah. circumstances, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the fight or flight system in you. It's your strongest go-to in that this is the move that I make in this circumstance. But we've got to dissect uncomfortable further. Yeah. Because there are a variety of emotions that can be classified as uncomfortable. For example, fear. Fear could be a feeling that I'm feeling. And if my ego hijacks that fear, how could that come out in behavior? It could come out in the form of panic. Mm -hmm. Panic is very dangerous behavior. Sure. When we are operating in this kind of reptilian brain mode of fight and flight mode. Where well, emotions, emotions are running the show. Emotions are running the show. When I let my fear, when I let my ego get a hold of my fear and run with it, panic sets in. Mm -hmm. Scarcity is another one. I can have these feelings of I don't have enough. I'm going to miss out. F FOMO, right? We've heard that little mm -hmm. acronym, fear of missing out, yeah. fear of not having enough. I can have those little kind of scarcity feelings, but if my ego hijacks that feeling, it can throw me into a comparison behavior where all of a sudden now I'm pointing the finger at you over something that has nothing to do with anything other than my insecurities around scarcity. Well, why does Jim get to do fill in the blank? Right. And that becomes very dangerous behavior. Anger. So just to recycle on the coaching concept, Yeah, one of my favorite all-time coaches, a guy by the name of Lee Brower, Lee used to uh, remind us all that the basis of most unhappiness <laughs> is comparison. I think that's in your email, like on the signature of your email. Hmm. Comparison is the basis of all unhappiness. If you unpack it just for a brief second, just go noodle on that one for a while. When you start to feel unhappy about something... Is it based on comparison? Okay, enough said on that. Let's keep going. I want to pause on that and just let that sit there for a second because that's huge. And we're going to come back to a lot of that in future episodes specifically on the amount of unhappiness that's caused by comparison. That's yeah, awesome. He or she is smarter, richer, faster, better, more beautiful, more capable, more accomplished than I am. We're going to talk, if not in this episode, we will certainly get to it in the next one or two or three episodes. We're going to talk about this concept of false pride and how it's really a two-sided coin where it comes from this idea of scarcity and comparison where I'm not good enough. And because I don't feel good enough, what do I do to compensate for that in my behavior? We're going to talk about that later. Maybe it's a mask. Maybe. And how that mass comes out, we're going to really get into. Anger. Is anger something we're allowed to feel? I'm not allowed to feel anger. Why not? I'm Catholic. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. I've, 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 been, I've been told I'm not allowed to fear anger. I'm not allowed to feel anger because I'm an alcoholic. So <laughs> between the alcoholic and the Catholic in the room, there's not a lot of anger that goes on. 
although you and I don't often feel a lot of anger, we still do feel it. The question is what we've learned to do with it. I was very angry with one of my sons this week. My oldest son made a commitment to help me with something and then bagged on the commitment. And I was angry about that. And the way I shared my anger with him is the way I'm speaking with you right now. I'm very disappointed in what happened. And I went to my other son for help. And fortunately, he said, absolutely, Dad, I've always got your back. And that was awesome. Yeah, that was absolutely awesome. I mean, traditionally, anger comes out in the form of rage and it can. volume. And If the ego hijacks the anger, if you allow, and let me be clear, if you allow, if I allow my ego to hijack the feelings of anger that I have in my body, that stuff's going to come out like rage. I am going to project that on you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come at you. I don't necessarily have to yell, but there are ways that I can be aggressive that's just not healthy, and it's hurtful to the people around me. Sure. That's what ego can do with that feeling. Let's talk about one of my favorites, gluttony. Gluttony is something I might be feeling inside, and people like you and me often feel a sense of, yeah, let's go eat something fun or drink something fun or do something fun. A friend of mine, who I hope is listening to this, lost a tremendous amount of weight. Nice. A number of years ago. I don't exactly remember how much weight, but it it was, you know, it was like north of 50 pounds. And he taught me this concept around gluttony that was, I deserve blank. Mm. So I worked hard and toiled and sweated my tushy off today. And therefore, I deserve the second helping. I deserve the bag of Doritos. I deserve the ice cream bar, I deserve, whatever whatever the gluttonous behavior was in my case around food. And he was the first one to really open my eyes to that yeah. in the context of I deserve, right? Well, and you could take this, not just in food, you could take this in a multitude of directions. Oh, everything. Right? When particularly with our friends with online shopping and the frictionless nature of how you can buy stuff today, <laughs> right? Uh, I, des- I deserve the gizmach. Right. I, des- I deserve the new thingamabob. I deserve a full cart on Amazon.com, and I'm going to swipe left and buy it all. Yeah, because I worked hard today. There's a subtlety to that word deserve that you just mentioned. Deserve? Well, Did when, I say it wrong? When you say I deserve something, that takes gluttony, which I think gluttony in and of itself is not dangerous. Because what if instead of saying I deserve that ice cream... I'm entitled to it. No, I'm going the other way, dude. Sorry, I'm having fun. I know you are. Well, deserve and entitle goes further down the ego path Mm -hmm. where the gluttony can turn into reckless behavior. What I'm talking about is what happens if we just change that word from deserve to want? I want an ice cream. So if I'm sitting on my couch and it's a Friday night and I'm someone who's very, very aware of what I feed my body and put in my body, it's part of how this living amends process of treating myself better works – But sometimes I want an ice cream. I don't feel I deserve it. I don't feel I'm entitled to it. I just want it. Is it gluttony? Absolutely. Am I allowed to have a little gluttony in my life? Absolutely. But the minute I deserve it or I'm entitled to it, that's a sense that my ego has hijacked it and it's become this reckless behavior that for me turned into full-blown drinking, eating, partying, hurting myself, hurting other people, blowing myself up to 250 pounds and almost dying. Don't forget spending. Oh, crap. Did I do that too? Oh, wait a minute. That's kind of the point of this whole podcast, isn't it? Don't forget the spending. Oh, yeah. I did a little bit of that too. Yeah. And I love you like the brother from another mother. You were the poster child of gluttony. 
Yes. And if our dear friend Glenn is listening right now, he's laughing his tushy off <laughs> at the thought of you lecturing people on gluttony. <laughs> well, Glenn. And I'm and hey, I'm, I'm only lecturing until I'm not. I'm in the hair club for men too. I mean, I liked it so much I bought the thing as well. I've struggled with various forms of gluttony my entire life. Don't you remember the private message I got on LinkedIn that kicked off this whole thing? I put an article out on LinkedIn called Confessions of a Recovering Wholesaler. Yes, I do. It was the first time I spilled the beans about the financial train wreck of my life in a public fashion. And it went viral. And it went viral. And I got a message back from one of my old colleagues who said to me, Matthew, aren't we all just like cobblers who work on everybody else's shoes but our own? Of course I'm a glutton who's talking about gluttony because my gluttony doesn't cause the kind of reckless behavior that it used to. And it's not so much about lecturing about it as much as it is is sharing experience about the fact that I hated that part about me. Right. And I've made some choices in my life where I don't do that as much as I used to. And how do you feel about yourself now? My life is as good as it's ever been. I have a relationship with myself where I can look in the mirror and say, I'm proud of you. I love you, and I believe in you. And I actually believe it when I say that to myself. And that has nothing to do with how much money I have in the bank. It has nothing to do with my status at work or what I do for a living or what people around me think of me. That all comes from my ability to look in the mirror and have an intimate relationship with that guy irregardless of what's going on in the world around me. We use those words intentionally. Very intentionally. And... May I say that that's how we measure progress in arrears? Yes. Right? We use the rearview mirror to measure our progress. That's fantastic. Oh, it's awesome. And you could draw that map back and you could say, whether it be, and I'm just, you know, supposition here, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, you could keep going in terms of your relationship with self, that the progress that you've made has been absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely. I've had to have some relapses along the way to see the progress. You know, a couple steps forward, step or two back. I had an incident recently where I said something to my oldest son I, I shouldn't have said. I stuck my nose in his business, and he quickly whoosh, shut me down for doing it. I took my clothes off, got in the shower, and I was just cussing myself out. Do you normally shower with your clothes on? Yeah, I have been known to do that on occasion. Oh. That, especially back in the days when I used to drink, I would find myself coming to in the morning in the shower with clothes on and never knew how I got there, but I was wet. I should try that. I've never tried that. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest it. Okay. Yeah. Now now that I don't come to in the morning and I actually wake up in the morning, I find myself taking showers without my clothes on, which is a good thing. I found myself in the shower getting really angry at myself for what I just did. And I was starting to cuss myself out and I was about to punch the ceramic wall in my bathroom and I stopped myself. I don't want to replace that tile again? I don't want to break that knuckle again. <laughs> <laughs> Heck with the tile. I don't want to break my hand again because we're going to talk about the years that I spent punching things and the physical abuse that I put on my own body right. as a result of, of my ego, of this mask that I was wearing. Boy, there are so many feelings and emotions that my ego could very easily hijack. I mean, fear, scarcity, anger, gluttony. How about guilt? Guilt is one. I felt guilt that day in the shower about jumping into my son's business, and I started to allow my ego— to hijack that guilt and turn it into shame to well, where I wanted to hurt myself over that shame. Let's be clear. Guilt is one thing. Yes. Shame is a very different thing. Guilt's inevitable. Shame is optional. Shame is when scarring can happen. Shame. Permanent damage. Absolutely. Shame is 
a subject matter and an emotion that probably deserves its its own separate conversation because that's where a lot of damage I know with myself has come from. It's one thing to feel guilty. I should have done this. I should have done that. I shouldn't have bought this. I shouldn't have eaten that. La, 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 la. But you stack enough guilt on top of itself and it can disintegrate into shame. And the shame is what can last a very long time. So I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit. I think you can pile a ton of of guilt on without letting it transfer to shame, where I think it becomes shame. Well, you got to empty the garbage every once in a while. You do, but where it becomes shame is when you let your ego hijack the feelings of guilt that you're feeling. Oh, I'm... It, can, it can happen once. The first bit of guilt you feel, if you let your ego hijack that, you're going to start feeling shame. You could let guilt pile up, do 10 or 12 things that all of a sudden you're questioning whether I should have done them. And if you allow your ego into the room, it's going to hijack that guilt and turn it into shame. So I'm coming at this from the perspective of you're unaware of what's going on. Absolutely. Right? I'm unaware... That get it. the ego is running the show. Yeah, yeah. Right? I get it. Again, that whole concept of awareness. And if I'm aware of the fact that the ego is running the show and there's a chameleon out in front, that's how I think it disintegrates to shame. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I've had this conversation about these feelings and how if the ego hijacks it, it can turn into something destructive. Did you and I make all this stuff up? Every single bit of it. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, we're going to copyright all of it today. You and I didn't make any of this up. We've studied this. Correct. The first place, in fact, Lonnie introduced me to this place. It's called the Enneagram Institute. Can I just say one other thing? Sure. So why bother going through the toil of repackaging, repurposing all this content in a podcast? Well, it's because we want to help you get there faster. Accelerate. Accelerate your progress so that you can get there faster. Maybe you avoid some of the bumps and the bruises that you and I have had. But at the same time, you need to have your own bumps and bruises because it's your own journey and your own experience. If it's taken you and me 15 years to get to feeling what we're feeling today, could we help other people accelerate that progress to feel this in six or seven years or sooner? Not to say that there's an arrival with that. I'm just saying how I feel today is different than how I felt 15 years ago. I just wanted to express that part of the reason we are doing this and talking about all this is to help you with your progress because it's your journey not our journey. We're just sharing with you our experience. Yes. And this next little section is juicy. Well, this is where we got it from. Yeah. One of the places that we jumped in headfirst to really understand this concept of ego and how the ego can hijack the human experience, we chose to work with a group called the Enneagram Institute. Don Hudson, he was the creator of, the word? of this place, the, the Enneagram Institute. Ma, 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 ma. What was that? Enneagram. How do you spell that? E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Enneagram. The Enneagram. Hmm. The Enneagram is a nine-sided, almost geometric shape on a piece of paper that each one of those nine sides represents one expression of the human ego. And this thought methodology is how old? I think Don and his partner started the Institute in 1985. Right. I think the actual the actual Enneagram. science behind it goes back a good couple thousand years. Yes. The, yeah. the Enneagram is something that's been around a long, long time. The institute that Don created started in the mid-80s, and what it was really meant to do 
was provide ways for people to learn and understand about their own specific primary ego type, as well as how to recognize ego types in others. So that not only can I recognize when my ego is running the show, but I could also recognize in other people when their ego is running the show. Not for the purpose of pointing it out to them, but to recognize when I am or am not communicating with a real human being versus their egoic self. And also to be clear, it wasn't, there's no judgment here. No. So often when with our team and, and some clients that we worked with where we've used tools like the Enneagram or Kathy Colby's program called the Colby Method, it's not with judgment. It's not with good, bad, right, wrong. It's, it's about awareness. It's, again, it's this concept of awareness. Awareness and to steal from Glenn again, gathering data. Gathering data about how my ego shows up, and the more I can become aware of that and practice it, the more better I, – I love more better – the more better I can become at recognizing when ego's there and making some different choices. So we've talked a lot about performing. Yes. Right? And giving incredible performances. Part of the reason you and I have gone down the route of learning all about the Enneagram and Colby and DISC and all these other diagnostics is to get better at our craft, but then for us to also then be able to perform at a higher level because we're having an understanding and awareness of the party that we're working with in terms of their ego type. So let's dive in to these nine different ego types. There are nine. And the first one, what Don and his team refers to as the reformer, ego type number one, he calls the reformer. I like to think of this as the perfectionist. This is the person who tends to be pretty rational, pretty idealistic. They're very principled and purposeful. They have a lot of self-control. And, and that word perfectionist always comes back. I'm sure we can think of people in our lives that kind of fit that bill a little bit. Type two is what we call the helper. The helper is somebody I like to call the people pleaser. This is the caring interpersonal type. They're very demonstrative. They're very generous. They're very people-pleasing. Yeah. They're also very possessive. This is what I also like to call the yes man, always trying to make people happy. Yeah. She's not in the studio today, but my wife is a two. My wife is the helper. She will go out of her way to help everybody always, almost to the detriment of herself. That's generally the two's egoic leanings is – I'm going to not take care of myself and throw myself into you at the risk of hurting myself, at yeah. the risk of not taking care of myself. And I get a little possessive and a little protectionistic for her on the fact that you're just, you know, give, 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 and your, your tank is empty, right? Well, you're the seven, and we're going to talk about why that triggers the seven. Exactly. So what's the number three? The number three is the achiever. This is what you and I like to call the image seeker. This is your very success-oriented, pragmatic type. They're highly adaptive, and they excel at most of what they do. They're very driven people. They're also very, very image-conscious. It's, very, it's yes. all about how the show looks. Yes, yes. Or as they might say in Texas, all hat, no cattle. Yeah, the old Western movie front. Exactly. The Again, there's no rights or wrong here. All right, what's type four, brother? Type four is the individualist a.k.a. the self-absorbed. Mm. So that label, that hurts a little when people hear that, but it's the sensitive type. It's the person that's a little bit more withdrawn. Isolated. A little isolated. Yeah. They can be a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more temperamental. 
again, this is all about awareness. Yes. Five is the investigator, the scientist, the, the mad scientist that is a little bit more intense, a little cerebral. They're a little secretive, like they're off in their lab, <laughs> yes. right, doing their thing. I don't know why, but I, I just, I don't know a lot of fives. I've not met many fives in my life. Oh, Maybe we, that's because they're in the lab. Exactly. They're isolated. How about six? Six is the loyalist. The loyalist is somebody that you and I like to call the skeptic. Yeah. This is somebody who lives in a lot of fear. I mean, they're very committed, but they're very kind of security-oriented types of people. They can engage. They're very responsible, but they're also very anxious and suspicious. That's the word I often associate with the six, is they're suspicious. Yes. So Skeptical and suspicious. In that conversation of us trying to work on the trust gap and building trust at lightning fast speeds and all those things that we've talked about in prior episodes, yeah, the six is the one that, for me— and you might say I have superhuman strength at this stuff, but that's the one that is always the challenge for me is the six. Because they're just, it takes the longest. They are inherently suspicious. The guard is up, and I have to use all my super twin powers to activate. Well, here's a great example of why being aware of a six in the room is so important for us to be successful at communicating the message that we're trying to communicate is just the recognition that this is someone that's going to take a little bit more time to develop the trust with, and you and I can be okay with that. If you and I are blowing and going at a million miles an hour and clients are pushing all in across the table after an hour, and then all of a sudden we have one show up that it takes a few days, if we weren't aware that they were a six, that would be incredibly frustrating to the two of us. Yeah. And our own egos might hijack that frustration. And what's the matter with you? And project some- Gangster. Gangster anger. Right. All right, so since I'm the seven, yeah, you got to talk. About I got to talk seven. about myself. Yeah, because I like talking about myself. You could. That's talk my to, Jim Carrigan. I like it. In fact, you're so good at talking about yourself. You could talk to you. could talk about yourself to a wrong number for three days. You betcha. <laughs> so this is the enthusiast. This is the reckless, loving glutton, the busy, fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distracted squirrel, squirrel, a little scattered, and. When I was unaware of this, it was such an aha. So Jim Kelly is the one that turned me on to the Enneagram in 2004. And we went through the little diagnostic and went through it. And, oh, really? I'm that? I'm that. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, when they go through this exercise for the first time and they have that awareness and the light bulb comes on, ugh. Well, it sure does explain a lot of stuff, doesn't well, it? Well, yeah, and it's like, really? Can't I be the achiever? <laughs> Right. Can't I be the, the eight when we get to it? But yet it answered so many questions. Well, the, f the first time I did the Enneagram, I also came out at a seven. And my reaction to it was, oh, well, that makes sense. That explains a lot. That explains my whole freaking life. Yeah. After that first thing, ugh, feeling, yeah. then you start to get into, okay, this makes sense, yeah. right? It's like you're sitting there and you've been working for an hour and a half on the GD puzzle piece that you can't find because they're so small. Yep. And then you find that puzzle piece and, you know, blah, 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 you just blow through half the puzzle. Right. That's what this Enneagram was like for me. I just I, cracked the door I, I, open. Oh, my yeah. goodness. It cracked the code yep. on so many different behaviors that now I could see them. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to make adjustments to it, I could and I have. And I, too, have had my relapses. But the, the enthusiast... That's you, brother. That's me. Number eight. 
So this, think of it as the CEO. Think yeah, of the that, challenger. That, the eight is the challenger. The label's the challenger, but just think we of it, it as that hard driving, just hammer of a CEO that just drives you and pushes and pushes and they're powerful and they're self-confident, decisive and willful and they're very confrontational. Confrontational? Right? No, they're not. They just get in your face and they tell you eight different ways why you didn't do what you should have done and you could have done better and la, 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 la. I, I had a seventh grade basketball coach that was very much that way. He was, I mean, if I had known in seventh grade what the Enneagram was, it would have made that experience a lot better because it's it scarred me in my own way into partly why I'm not very confrontational because that was such a difficult experience for me to have him screaming and spitting at me in basketball practice. You may have for a little bit of time as a kid, although you were unaware well before you're seven, you may have been a little bit of a nine because of that, because the nine is what they call the peacemaker or what you and I just simply call the passive aggressive. Sure. This is the easygoing, self-effacing type. They're pretty receptive and reassuring and agreeable, but they're also very complacent. And what they hate more than anything else in the world is conflict. Yes. So they avoid it at all costs. It bubbles up inside of them, and then that aggressive rah, comes raging out at the wrong time. There are nine different types that we've talked about here. And what I want to be very clear about is that these types are not about defining the person. So you are not a seven. Right. Jim is not the enthusiast. Right. I'm not a helper. Beth is not a helper. Our ego type, when we disappear and our ego hijacks our emotions, this is how our ego is going to be expressed to the world as an enthusiast, as a helper, as an achiever, as an individualist. As I refer to it, the go-to move. Yes, the fight or flight move. You're in a pickle. You did all that Haganah training back in high school. Yes, sir. Right? And I'm, I got to imagine they taught you well, in not certain, high school. Sorry. High, like, post high school. Yeah, like 10 years ago. Right. Well, you, that was high school. I am young. I mean, I'm. Yeah, your skin's young. I graduated high school in 33 that, years old. They, they had to teach you a move. Yes. When this happens, you do this. Yes. In overly simplistic way, think of this as my go to move. Well, that when is, I'm unaware, boom, the enthusiast, the glutton shows up. Well, that, that is martial arts. That is almost any sport is that you train your body to have muscle memory. You train your body to react to something that's happening externally. To think that our minds wouldn't behave the same way, that our minds have been conditioned to behave and react in this fight-or-flight mode because we've reinforced it and practiced it for so many years, what we're trying to do is unpractice that, unlearn that, and learn a whole new way to deal with these behaviors or these external things that happen rather than just letting our ego take over and go on autopilot. That's what we're trying to do. What's really cool about all this is that if you want to find out what your type is, there's an easy website you can go. There's a free test you can take. It's eclecticenergies.com. You can go to the Enneagram Institute as well. They charge a couple of bucks to do the test. There's a freebie version on that website, eclecticenergies.com, where you can do, a, it's like a 15-question quiz that gives you an idea of what your primary ego type is. Love it. What I've also learned is that you and I have exhibited the egoic behaviors of all nine types. Oh, just, yeah. Just, just because as you were refreshing me on the nine, I was like, oh, yeah, that was definitely me in high school and college. Yeah. We have a primary type, but then we also have these wings and other behaviors that can exhibit 
the other nine types. My favorite, we're going way down the path here. This is a little past the, uh, the entry-level 101 class. Mm-hmm. But under stress, you disintegrate to something, yes. right? In this nine-sided nine-oligon or whatever it's called, I will tell you that under stress, I tend to morph a little bit to the eight. You do, absolutely. And I get a little CEO-like. CEO-like. Yeah. Not the caring, heartfelt CEO, but a little bit more of the cold calculating type. And I tend to do that under stress. And again, we're beating the drum on this until it's into the ground. It's awareness. It is. It's okay, unless the behavior is reckless and damaging, but it's just, okay, I'm in, okay, my eight's showing up. Well, a healthy seven disintegrates into an eight. Before you were a healthy seven, when you were an unaware seven. I went to Jack in the Box. You went to Jack in the Box and Jack Daniels, all of our favorite uncles. So did I. That's what the seven disintegrates into with these gluttonous behaviors. But as you become an integrated seven, you start learning the positive qualities of your enthusiast ego, and you harness that dark side, those egoic behaviors to your benefit, because now you're aware of them, and you're actually in control of them. We're still a long ways away over the next few episodes of getting to that point of, well, how do we actually do that? We're still talking about all the theory that you and I have learned about our ego, just this whole textbook kind of stuff. But we're going to get to a point where we're actually talking about once we're aware of this stuff, what do we actually do with it? What's the actual behavior and action that we do with this to practice this stuff? So this one's from my boys who probably aren't listening, but this is my favorite Enneagram joke. Do you know why six was afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> We're going to start to put some yeah. labels and faces on different aspects of our ego, right? Yeah. So what this whole process of studying the Enneagram and understanding my ego type, in, even though my ego type has changed over the years, I was a seven when I first was introduced to the ego and the Enneagram. When I recently retook the test on eclectic energies, it came back that I'm now a two. So I've gone from being the enthusiast to the helper. And in looking at the two ego types and how they come out, there are a lot of similarities there. So it it makes sense that that's changed. When I first learned that I was a seven, it took a little while, but something that Lonnie had helped me figure out was that if I could actually recognize this mask that I was wearing and turn it into a character that had a name— then I could start going through this process of disassociation with my ego. I could actually start separating the real me from this egoic behavior and not attach me to that behavior. Let's just pause. Yeah, we got to pause that because- Disassociation. Disassociation. I am not my behavior. That doesn't give you permission to- It doesn't. Be reckless. I'm not giving myself permission to be reckless. What I'm doing is I'm looking in arrears like you've always taught me, which is, okay, my behavior back there sucked. Right. And if I associate myself with that behavior, I'm going to develop guilt, shame, and and I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm going to hate myself, and chances are I'm probably going to do something to myself that's not healthy. I might drink. I might overeat. I might go punch a wall. I might go yell at you. But if I can look at my past behavior— And I can realize that that was a component to my ego. For me, maybe that was Tommy Boy, which was the name of the very first mask I was able to identify. My glutton, my my party guy. 
Oh, Tommy Boy was a blast. <laughs> we, I miss him, actually. We but, had fun. I mean, he was a blast. He was fun to party with. Oof. And his, his absolute favorite thing in the world to do when things got hard was to chuck it in the effort bucket. Right. That's how Tommy Boy lived his life. Right. I can look back at my Tommy Boy behavior. I don't excuse it. I get to clean it up. I get to fix it. I get to go apologize. I get to go talk to the people that Tommy Boy has hurt. I get to clean that mess up. But by disassociating the real me with Tommy Boy, I don't have to live for the rest of my life with the guilt and the shame of the behaviors of my past. Mm -hmm. I can learn how to forgive myself, which is step one to healing this relationship with self thing, is how do I learn to forgive myself for the stuff in the past I have no control over ever changing? I can't change the past. All the inappropriate stupid behavior, whatever you want to call it, that Tommy Boy would get himself into. The spending, the drinking, the partying, the raging, the careless things I would say to other people that would completely hurt them. All of those things that I did, I can fix those things. I can work for the rest of my life fixing those things, but I can't fix those things if I can't first forgive myself for doing them because that anchor will hold me on the bottom of the ocean for the rest of my life. I I really want people to breathe that in for a second. And a good exercise for them, for you might be to stop the recording and journal and think in your own mind of different characters, different voices in the context of who's speaking to you. So for me, one of the loudest voices in my head is the chairman of the board. Hmm. There's no name for this person other than it's the chairman of the board. Yeah, we're going to work on giving him a name. Yeah. But Because he'll show up less if we give him a name. The chairman of the board shows up and is generally yelling at me for not being enough, blank, not doing enough, right? So this is a great exercise if you have the opportunity to just pause the recording and just see what happens. If you need a little help with this and you've ordered a copy of my book, Financial Sobriety, I didn't number the chapters. I don't know why we did that. I think I didn't want to on purpose, but I can't remember why. There's a chapter called The Interfering Ego. It's the fifth or sixth chapter in the book. And that's where I talk a lot about Tommy Boy and all of these different masks that I was able to identify. I thought that was a very brave exercise to sit there and put in writing the different characters, the different personas, the different aspects of the chameleon that would show up in your life. Yeah, my butt was puckered when I wrote that. Because initially when the idea that these multiple actors were inside of my head producing multiple masks that I might display in public the next day, I wondered if I was bipolar. I wondered if I had some sort of major mental illness that all these characters were running around in my head. And what I learned, thankfully, through Lonnie, through Jim Kelly, through working with Don and the folks at Enneagram Institute, that's a perfectly normal expression of ego. We don't often differentiate these different expressions of ego because we don't take the time to look at it. We run away from our dark side. We don't want to deal well, with maybe, these ugly feelings. And maybe we don't know how. And we don't know how. So starting with the loudest actor in your head. Yeah, here's the writing exercise. And right? Like Jim said, let's push pause on this and, and see if you can figure out who is that loudest voice in my head, the most well-defined mask that I put on every day. Can you think of one? Can you think of two? Wow. (laughs) I can't believe all the subject matter that we just blew through. And 
what our listeners might be thinking in terms of, wow, these where do these guys come up with all this stuff? But it's really powerful when you can slow it down and unpack this stuff. And I think we're going to call it a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today. Here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.